This is the Frog for Life podcast. I'm your host, Rob Berline. And a few days later, uh, everybody was getting, you know, their blue books back. He said there were two essays uh, that were exceptional. The rest were pretty dreadful. (laughs) (laughs) I was holding my breath. I thought, oh, no. And he said, and the two. And one was a fellow classmate and, and mine. Sandra Cock, and I was like, oh my gosh, and so he read my essay aloud to the rest of the class, (laughs) and I got a B plus, and I've always wondered, why didn't I get an A? (laughs) (laughs) That is the voice of renowned author Sandra Brown. Sandra has authored over 80 books worldwide, including 70 that has shown up on the New York Times bestseller list. She has always had a gift for the English language, and she will tell you about her journey as a student professional and the way she gives back today and we are so honored today to be joined by renowned author new york times bestseller sandra brown sandra thank you so much for joining us today oh thank you for the invitation and so you attended tcu 1966 to 1968 what led you to come to tcu well i actually went all the way through school in fort worth and uh so I was very aware of the university uh, from early on. And my dad at the time worked for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and a scholarship had been established years before, employees, children. Um, and we took tests like our junior year, and then in our senior year, uh, they awarded uh, one to two boys and one to two girls. So I was working actually at the newspaper the summer after my uh, senior year in high school, and um, I was working in the morgue <laughs> where they keep all the files, and um, and that's when I learned that I had been uh, one of the two girls uh, selected uh, to get the scholarship, and it was life-changing for me. She and I actually uh, wound up, her name was Kathy McCauley, camp now we actually wound up as roommates at tcu both of us had wanted to go to tcu and without the scholarships that we were awarded we would never have been able um to go so it it really was truly a life-changing event for me and i'll for um forever be grateful to Eamon carter for <laughs> establishing uh that scholarship long before i was born but also for being selected um as one of the recipients and once you got to tcu i knew you were an english major talk about some of those experiences you had at tcu and with, along with your roommate and uh some of the some of your times there well i lived in waits dorm she and i became we we lived there actually two years it was a freshman dorm but she and i became what were called sophomore sponsors and uh, we loved our our room there in Waits, and it was on the front of the building. We could see out over across the, the broad uh, green span there. So we, we actually lived there two years together um, in Waits. In terms of being an English major, for me it was an easy choice because, um, as I said, my, my father worked at the Star-Telegram. He was an editorial writer, and my mother was an avid uh, reader and I mean we always had books in our house and and books and reading was such a integral part of my life from the time I can remember 
so choosing English as my major was really, um, you know, I mean, it was kind of preordained. I remember, and everyone, you know, takes freshman comp, uh, composition, and it's a dreaded subject for most in, incoming freshmen, but it, it really wasn't that frightening for me. I got scared about things like, you know, math and <laughs> science and chemistry and things like that. Um, but there were very few in my in my English class. It was an early morning class, I think an 8 o'clock class, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Uh, there were, I think, maybe 22 in the, in the class. And we had to, we were assigned the John Donne poem, uh, The No Man is an Island, that ends, you know, send not to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. So we had to take that paragraph, that passage, and and write a scene, write an essay about it. And we could work on it outside the classroom, but when we got to the classroom, we were given a, a blue book. And we had to actually write our theme during the class period. It was like a, a test. So I had planned out what I was, you know, more or less what I was going to write. And I got into the class and wrote it. And a few days later, uh, everybody was getting, you know, their blue books back. The teacher, uh, he wasn't a professor. I think it was a, they call him proctor. Is that the term? Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, he said there were two essays. Uh, that were exceptional. The rest were pretty dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> I was holding my breath. I thought, oh, no. And he said, and the two, and one was a fellow classmate and, and mine, Sandra Cox. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And so he read my essay aloud to the rest of the class. <laughs> and I got a B plus, And I've always wondered, why didn't I get an A? <laughs> <laughs> But if it was that exceptional, but anyway, all of this to say, Rob, is that um, uh, it it never was that difficult for me, you know, to put words on paper. Um, and here I am all these years later, you know, doing it for hire. And uh, so I guess I had uh, the propensity for it early on. Um, but it never occurred to me that I would be a fiction writer. I, I assumed that my life, would, my life would take the path of perhaps becoming a high school English teacher, teaching you know literature and and writing. Um, but it never occurred to me <laughs> that I would become a professional writer. Uh, that that came a lot later than than TCU, but it was is that foundation and uh, certainly the courses that, you know, I took there um, were were very basic and, and fundamental to, to what I do now. Upon leaving college, Sanders' first job was not as a writer. It was in TV. Well, I, I married young and uh, I transferred up to Oklahoma State University because my husband was several years older than I, so he was he was about to, to graduate. He had one more year. So um, we, we transferred up there, and, um, and then after he got out, and it, this was, you know, at the height of the Vietnam War, and he was very fortunate. Once he graduated, every, you know, 
wealthy young men his age were being drafted and sent straight, you know, to Vietnam. He was fortunate enough to get into a reserve unit. And so he stayed stateside, but he still had to go through basic training and, and serve in the reserves. And and once he had finished all of that, um, he got a job in broadcasting in uh, in Tyler, Texas. And so we lived there for five years. We had our children. Uh, the TV station approached me one day and said, how would you like to um, to do some TV work? And I said, oh, sure. <laughs> that sounds like fun. Then my, uh, I, I worked there at the television station. Then Michael got a job at Channel 8 in Dallas. And we moved. And uh, shortly after he had been working there, um, again, I was approached and said, we know you've done some TV work. How would you like to, to do some here? So we wound up doing the weekend news and weather together. It was real cheesy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was fun. And they asked me to work on a program called PM Magazine. It was a syndicated magazine show. Um, nationwide syndication, but uh, Channel 8 had a, a production crew for this region, and so I was one of the on-air personalities for that. Had a great time, but it was part-time work. I was basically at home with, you know, with babies, but um, it was my little outlet, my creative outlet, and then one day they came through and fired everybody on, on our crew and uh, said we need fresh faces. And uh, so I was devastated, uh, absolutely devastated at the time. And I got to looking around and I thought, well, now what am I, am I going to do? And I worked at the Apparel Mart in Dallas as a, as a showroom model for several years. But still, I just felt like there was something I should be doing with my life that I wasn't. And uh, by that time, Michael had a, a show on Channel 8, a live morning program where he interviewed everybody, celebrities, politicians, you know, m- musical artists, everybody that came through, including authors on book tour. And one day he, I, I told him, I said, gosh, you're watching your show. And this lady was on there, you know, talking about her book that she's written. And she lives right here, you know, because I always thought of authors as living in, you know, some exotic place, <laughs> Paris or New York or L.A. or something, mm-hmm. uh, but not Arlington, Texas. And um, he said, yeah, you ought to, he said, in fact, you ought to, you ought to try writing because you've always said you wanted to, but you just talk about it. You never do it. So are you going to keep talking about it or are you going to try it? So he more or less put it in the form of a dare and I set out to do it not knowing if I could or not but I did my homework I started attending writers conferences and uh, reading books on fiction writing specifically because it was nothing that my dad could help me with because he didn't write fiction Um, but I was always you know, my mother was such a romantic, and from the time I can remember, she read us fairy tales, my sisters and me, and we would just, you know, I just loved books and loved reading, and I thought, yeah, I, you know, I'm going to study up, see if I can do this, and so we literally set up a card table in a spare room of the house with a, a typewriter and a ream of paper, and, and that's when I started, but I, um, approached it from the beginning I thought I'm not going to dabble at this you know I'm, I'm not going to be a laughing stock um, if I 
you know, it's kind of difficult. You don't graduate from something and hang out your shingle as a writer. You know, it's not like getting your your CPA (laughs) and and saying, okay, I can go to work tomorrow doing this. So um, for about a year and a half, I I just wrote every day with a frenzy. Uh, The kids got in preschool and those were my days off, you know, and I would just write, 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 and uh, eventually got a bookstore owner in Lufkin, Texas, to to read my manuscript, and she said, I know uh, an editor in New York who's looking for just this kind of book to start a new line of romances, and I said, what's romances? <laughs> and she said, well, it's like Harlequin romance, except these are going to, Harlequin's uh, uh, English company. She said there's a, a line that she's starting for Bantam, and uh, it was Bantam Doubleday Dell at the time. And so she sent my manuscript to this editor, and she called and said, "I want to buy your book." Hmm. <laughs> and of course, I was I was elated. And and she said, "Have you written anything else?" And I said, "Well, yeah, I'm just finishing up another." And she said, "Is it like this? Is it the same orientation?" And style and I said yes and she said well send me that and she called me 13 days later and bought the second book so I actually sold my first two within 13 days of each (laughs) other and and that was a long time ago but um, I've been at it ever since and I I love it (laughs) just love it over her career Sandra has authored over 80 books and 70 New York Times bestsellers were those her goals setting out? I can only relate to you a story. Soon after I determined that I was going to do this, I was still unpublished, but I was working at it. And we attended um, some luncheon uh, for, I can't remember, it was in Dallas somewhere. And while there, somebody asked me, uh, said, well, what are you doing now that you're not on television? I said, well, I'm... I'm trying to write a novel, and they said, oh, well, there's a lady here. You need to meet her, and honestly, Rob, I don't even remember her name. I don't know who she was, but they entered, whoever it was introduced me to her, and I said, how many books have you published? She said, well, I've published seven, and I thought, seven? <laughs> and I remember us getting in the car on the way home, and I... I Tell Michael, I said, I can't even imagine having seven books published. (laughs) (laughs) And so in answer to your question, every benchmark in my career has been such a, it's almost been like a surprise and an astonishment and an enormous blessing to me. I mean, I just regard each each transition, all of the evolutions, you know, because I moved from romance into st- I was writing for a series of romances, and they were all published alike, you know, with uh, similar covers and everything. Well, then after many years of that, um, I evolved into writing what they call standalone books. And then uh, the publisher said, we think you're ready to go into hardcover. And then it was like, okay, you've got to, we want to publish you as you're moving more into mystery, suspense, thriller. 
but we can't publish you as a romance writer and that you're going to have to decide. And I said, well, you know, which pays more? (laughs) (laughs) And it was like, well, this one. I said, then that's what I'm going to write. And so that was like in the early 90s, which now seems like, you know, horse and buggy days. But um, it was that was a a huge transition because it was like leaving a a velvet lined rut. You know, I was, I was a bestseller in, in that genre, but I kind of had to start all over again, but I wanted to, I was anxious to. Um, so, and, and I never feel like I've really deserted one genre. I just feel like I've incorporated elements, uh, the, the elements that are in a romance novel I brought into the suspense and mystery, and at that time, I was one of the very few authors uh, who were who were doing that. And so now, when I read an article and they say, you know, the romantic suspense genre was really started by pioneers like Sandra Brown, I'm going, what? I was a pioneer. <laughs> who knew? <laughs> I didn't know at the time, but because it was so natural, you know. For me, it didn't seem like that huge elite, but um, I've been so, I'm so grateful um, every day for the opportunities I've been given to do something that I love doing and to um, be able to make a a living out of it and to still, um, to have lasted this long, to have the longevity. Uh, not long ago in an interview, someone said, what are you most proud of? And it can't be your children or something. <laughs> career-wise, career-wise, what are you most proud of? Mm-hmm. And is it particular work or what? It, and I said, oh, I can answer that easily. I'm most proud of the longevity because the reading audience doesn't know what they want until they're given it. Um, the world didn't know they wanted Fifty Shades of Grey until they were given it. They didn't know they wanted Harry Potter Mm -hmm. until they were given it. And so you could go back through. They didn't know they wanted Game of Thrones until they were given it. And so uh, books and series that have revolutionized uh, fiction writing and made such a stamp, you know, on the industry... um, it wasn't a publisher's idea. It was a, an author's idea. And it became, you know, a phenomenon. And so, um, but those things cannot be predicted. Nobody knows what the next Harry Potter is going to be. And so um, it threw all of those things. I don't have any, my books have, you know, they're completely foreign to any of those things I just named, but to be able to have survived, you know, these upheavals in the industry and to still make number one on the New York Times bestseller list, I'm I'm enormously grateful. And I'm sure you're asked all the time about which book is the most memorable. So, so I'm not going to ask you that because I think I read you said they're all like having different children or, you know, which is your <laughs> yeah. favorite child. But I but I wanted to ask you, is there a book that sticks out as to the process, as to you had uh, you really were inspired by this idea or you really had to overcome maybe a publishing uh, issue with it and getting it done? So the, the process, is there a book that sticks out that – Man, that I really think about how that really came together. 
Yeah, some, t- some have stood out because um, the story was just there. Uh, you know, I, I once I had the idea, I had the title, I had the character name, I had the, you know, it, w- it was just there. Um, others have been like, you know, every single day, like pulling teeth. And so they take on personalities and we have little tugs of war, you know, with each other, with the characters. Some characters I immediately fell in love with, couldn't wait to get to work every day to see what they were up to. Um, other characters, very stubborn, very difficult. Um, I mean, I know all this sounds schizophrenic, and I think <laughs> I think it probably is. <laughs> but um, there, I, I, one book stands out because uh, I had to write it over the, the period of time that my mother was dying. Uh, she died of um, a glioblastoma brain tumor, and uh, usually, you know, someone diagnosed, depending on where the tumor is, um, it, you know, affects different parts of the body, uh, different systems in the body. And um, But she lived longer than a lot of people do. She lived for 15 months with it. And, and I was the overseer of her health care during that period of time. And I had to, I was under contract, you know, to write a book. And my publisher was extremely sympathetic. I mean, they were like, look, take all the time you need, you know, whatever. But actually, it it was difficult to get up every morning and try to write about somebody else's problem when I was dealing with this. um, And it was, you know, consuming. But... um, on the other hand, I have found that during the most difficult times of my life, such as that, the writing has kept me grounded, too. It's like, um, I, I think in a way, you know, it's my, it, it is my escape from reality. I write fiction, so um, it, I've been able to channel, <laughs> you know, certain things, um, uh, into the writing and for a few hours get immersed in it and kind of, you know, get away from from reality. So that that book was called Unspeakable, Unspeakable, and it it kind of stands out at one that that was difficult to write, but only because of what was going on in my life. And then the flip side of that, uh, I had um, had nothing one day, just nothing, and I owed. <laughs> This is when I was writing the romances, late in the days when I was writing the romances. And um, I didn't have anything. Nothing was clicking. And then I just saw this character. I heard his thoughts. Um, I, I knew where he was. Um, it was just like I was there. And he gets in a, a barroom fight. And in walks his older brother. And I didn't know he had an older brother until the brother walked into the scene. <laughs> and it was just like, so I get this, uh, when it starts clicking like that, it's kind of a bubbly, you know, effervescence in my middle. It's just like I'm on to something. I get excited about it. So I'll call my editor. And I said, okay, I've got an idea for a book. Um, in fact, I'd like to do two. I said, uh, I want to do them from the male point of view, two brothers. She said, well, romances aren't written from the male point of view. 
And so she said, you can't do that. And I said, well, I kind of can. <laughs> 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 and, and so I said, tell you what, I'll throw in a third. I'll, uh, they'll have a bratty younger sister, and I'll do, it'll be a trilogy. And, and so I started naming all these conditions, but I, I wound up with, it was like a thousand-page novel <laughs> that I divided into 300-page books. Each character got his own book. The first two were written from the male point of view, which was revolutionary in the romance genre. And then um, the third one, uh, from the sister's point of view. And the last time I looked, um, they were in their 45th printing domestically. Um, but it was one of those things. They were so much fun to write because the characters were so endearing. I just loved them. It was set in East Texas, and it was during the uh, late 80s when the Texas economy, you know, the oil industry, you know, went <laughs> into the cellar. And so everybody involved with oil, you know, was really struggling, and, and they provided drilling equipment. So their business, you know, tanked, and they had to come up with something else. And so I just, I just loved the, I just loved the characters and, and the family, the, you know, continuance of the characters from book to book. They were all in each other's stories. And so they really resonated with uh, with the audience. So those two examples, I would say, the trilogy was so much fun to write, and and the other book was very difficult. And the only book that I've ever written that was based on anything remotely connected to me was a book called Rainwater, and um, uh, it was not a suspense, it was not a mystery. It came out in two thousand eight, and I wrote it. I squeezed it in between contract books I'd work on it you know for a couple of weeks then I'd have to put it away for months and then I'd have a long weekend and I'd get it out and work on it a little bit more and it was one of those books that the characters just came to me and said tell my story and uh, they would not leave me alone and I kept saying but this is not the kind of book I write but it was a story that that wanted to be told and it was actually based on a story that happened to my dad when he was six years old in the middle of the depression uh, central texas uh they had a farm and there was an incident where my grandfather was giving away his surplus milk to the sh people in a shanty town uh, across the railroad tracks, and uh, the federal government uh, had passed a you know uh, a law that they created a false demand for commodities like beef and and fowl and pork and all this, so it would raise prices. That was the theory, and uh, they said you can't give the milk away; that defeats the purpose. You've got to pour it out. And Grandpa said no. <laughs> with a few blankety blanks in front of it. <laughs> and um and so federal agents came and my they there was like a three day standoff <laughs> between the armed agents and my armed family, but uh, I don't think anything ever happened in terms of anybody getting hurt or anything. But the agents finally withdrew and grandpa went on giving away his milk instead of pouring it in the ditch. <laughs> so uh that the the rainwater is loosely based on an incident like that. In 2008, TCU presented Sandra with an honorary doctorate of humane letters. Oh, well, it was 
uh, it meant the world to me because I mentioned the scholarship. When I married, I had to sacrifice that scholarship. (laughs) (laughs) I was young and foolish, but the marriage has lasted 50 years, so I think I made the right decision. (laughs) But um, I, I had to sacrifice that scholarship and um, so I I never graduated Um, when it was actually I can't credit myself my husband went to uh, the chancellor and said um, you know this is Sandra's story uh, and I've always felt guilty because she gave up that scholarship because of me and so what I would like to do is establish a scholarship in her name and the university, the English creative writing departments, and, and Chancellor Bacchini was just, I mean, everyone was amazing, wonderful, fantastic. So they surprised me uh, with a party and announced the establishment of the scholarship. And, uh, and then they also surprised Michael <laughs> by saying, and by the way, uh, we're awarding a honorary uh, doctorate of humane letters, and of course, we were both just flabbergasted. And they said, "Do you want? You don't have to, but do you want to go through, um, you know, the the commencement exercise?" I said, "You bet, I do." <laughs> <laughs> so I marched in, and we went. They went through the hooding, and all of that it was really. It was wonderful. It was very, very meaningful uh, episode in my life and um, I only wished my parents had had lived uh, to see it I think they they would have both been enormously proud as a way to give back Sandra and her husband established the excellence in literary fiction scholarship the scholarship provides full tuition to a TCU student who demonstrates both academic excellence and significant potential as a fiction writer well, this, this year was the 10th anniversary, or well, actually, last year, 2018, was the 10th anniversary, and um, unfortunately, we had all nine previous recipients. The only one who could not attend was this year's recipient, and she was studying abroad in France, so we certainly understood <laughs> uh, that she couldn't be there at the dinner. But it was so fabulous to see these young people again. Uh, a lot of them have remained in touch. You know, they will, they will write me periodically. But all of them have gone on to be Rhodes Scholars. They've gone to um, abroad and, and worked in various fields. One is in publishing in New York. Uh, she attended Columbia, got advanced degree there. I mean, it's just been it's just been so rewarding, so amazing, and without exception, all of them have said uh, it, it really changed my life, which is what Michael's goal was. Uh, you know, he really wanted it to be, as did I, once I knew about it. Um, we said, yes, we want this to make a difference and, and make it easier on someone who has aspirations, you know, to write for a living. And, um, in in terms of the selection process, I have nothing to do with it. Um, and we set it up that way. We were given a lot of options. The only thing I said was talent is one thing, hard work is another. You can be the best storyteller in the world, but unless you have the the 
self-discipline and the determination and the willingness to make sacrifices and sit down and do it day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, you're never going to succeed as a writer. You may do it for, you know, your own edification. But if you're trying to make a, a career out of it, you've got to be ready to work harder than you've ever worked in your life. So when I was telling you know, staff members at TCU, I said, one thing, I want it to be something they have to work toward. If they don't, if they're unwilling to do that, then they don't deserve to get it. And um, what each um, applicant has to write 50 pages of fiction, and it can be 10 five-page short stories, it can be five ten-page short stories, it can be one long story, it can be three chapters of a novel, whatever they choose, however they choose to allocate those 50 pages, but they have to submit 50 pages of fiction along with an essay as to, you know, their writing aspirations and what the scholarship would mean to them and, and so on. And then um, the staff, the faculty, um, chooses, uh, they're judged by faculty members, and then they are, they pick five. The rest of the application process, I said I wanted it, I want the submissions to be blind submissions. No name, no gender, no ethnicity, but they are sent out to reciprocal universities, um, to, you know, departments and, um, and, you know, faculty members at other universities in a blind submission. And so that way we know it is fair, it is completely without prejudice and based on um, the talent, the work and nothing else. And uh, so that's the way Michael and I agreed. It was was the only way that we really wanted it to be handled. And the faculty and everyone at TCU has been four square, you know, for that process. So uh, we've been very, very, very uh, pleased with the way that our vision of what the scholarship would be has has come about that all of the, you know, and we have a meeting every year and they say, is there anything you want us to change? Is there any other way to handle it? Is there any other way to do this? And and we've been very pleased with it. So, And you said you, you went to school growing up uh, in Fort Worth and you currently live in Arlington, involved with the TCU Scholarship, the ELF Scholarship. What changes have you seen to the university uh, from childhood to now? Oh my gosh! Uh, it's uh, there's so much, um, <laughs> so much. When when I was living in the dormitory, you know, I mean, we had strict strict hours, um, curfews. Uh, you know, there was certainly no such thing as co-ed dorms. I don't know if TCU has co-ed dorms, but I was thinking about the the you know the college experience in general. I, I love that uh, TCU has now studies in Judaism. Um, I love the way that our chancellor now has been amazing in uh, incorporating TCU into the Fort Worth community. 
making it Fort Worth University. Um, I love that. Uh, before, you know, the at least I was unaware that Fort Worth, it wasn't really a part of it. And I think he's done a great job in making, you know, Fort Worth proud of, of TCU and kind of claiming it. And, um, and, and so that's different. Physically, I mean, just the layout of the university and all the new and the, the growth and everything is fantastic. So proud of, of all of that. Um, so it, it, there have been those changes, definitely. And I want to wrap up with this. So, we, so I know you have to get back to writing uh, your new novel, which I'm sure will come out next August. Um, what impact do you think TCU had on you becoming the, the bestseller that you are well, I think it goes back to that that English class, that freshman composition class. Um, I would encourage, um, oh, I would encourage it even back before university days. It it grieves me that um, that students aren't being tutored in writing. Uh, in fact, they're going the other way. You know, everything is in a shorthand. Everything is in a, you know, a jargon. Um, I, I hate that we, that my grandsons don't know how to write cursive. <laughs> Whatever they do, you know, they print. It's not even being taught. And so I see kind of this uh, digression of of the language, the use of language and expressing oneself. And so I, I really value cherish those days that I was taught uh, parts of speech and and how and how you incorporate them into your into writing and um, I, I just see that missing um, in curriculums these days and and I, I regret that um, I don't know how people will be writing books 50 years from now you know what what language will we have um, if we allow it to disappear. So I, I go back to that freshman composition class, and we were being taught um, how how to express ourselves, how to write, how to form sentences. Um, do students even have to diagram sentences anymore? <laughs> I don't know, but, I mean, it, it's that it's that basic to me. And I still go back and I think, oh, wait a minute, you know, What's the predicate of this adverb? <laughs> you know, what's the what's the predicate? Where, where's the? Oh yeah, okay. Uh, you know, do the pronoun and the antecedent match. It's all that kind of stuff. You know, um, that I learned. I don't know that writers are being cultivated these days. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, I'll leave you with this: What is the uh, what is the best place for our alumni to to follow your work at, and when can we expect the next novel? Probably August. I haven't been given a publication date yet. My latest one, called Tailspin, um, comes out this month, um, February 5th, um, in trade paperback. It's been in hardcover. It comes out in trade paperback February 5th. And um, so I hope people will read that one. The new one is yet untitled. <laughs> I'm like three quarters of the way through, and it still doesn't have a name, uh, but I'm working on that. Uh, but, yeah, it'll be somewhere just – usually it's just before Labor Day. We we always try to get it out there like the last beach book, you know, of the summer. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing your stories with us. And we look forward to reading more in the future and, and topping the, uh, the current 70 New York bestsellers. <laughs> thank you, Rob. Thank you so much. Thank you to KTCU and co-manager Jeff Craig for their editing of this episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Frog for Life podcast. If you or a friend or family member would like to share your story of your life since graduation, please contact us on social media or leave us a comment on our SoundCloud channel. We look forward to sharing the next story of how horned frogs are changing the world.